This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, it is an insane world out there. There are every single day new measures being uh, enacted by governments all across the world to stem the flow of COVID-19. So when you've got essential services like food catering companies who can deliver to your door and safely deliver things to your door, why go brave supermarkets? If you've got the means to order something in, bellacatering.com.au. They're one of the best caterers in Sydney. They've pivoted to home delivery during this crisis so that they can still keep their huge staff um, active and working for you and for your comfort. If you need some comfort food and you need a lot of it so you can save some in the fridge for a multiple days worth of meals, there is literally no one else that you need to contact. Glenn and Maria and their team are amazing. Glenn as an individual is deeply questionable, uh, but Maria and the team are wonderful. Guys, this is just my little way uh, to help support them. Now, onto the show. A reading from All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodard. At a press conference that same afternoon, June 22, President Nixon made his first public comment on the break-in. The White House has had no involvement whatever in this particular incident, he said. Bernstein and Woodward lingered over the phrase, this particular incident. There were already too many coincidences which couldn't be dismissed so offhandedly. An attorney in Washington had said he could positively identify Frank Sturgis as one of the several men who had attacked Pentagon Papers defendant Daniel Ellsberg outside a memorial service for the late FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover in May. One suspect's address book contained a rough sketch of hotel rooms that were to be used as headquarters by Senator McGovern at the Democratic Convention. An architect in Miami had said that Bernard Barker had tried to get the blueprints to the convention hall and its air conditioning system. Hunt's boss at the Mullen firm, Robert Bennett, had been an organiser about a hundred dummy campaign committees used to funnel millions of dollars in secret contributions to the president's re-election campaign. McCord had been carrying an application for the college press credentials for the Democratic Convention when he was arrested. He had recently travelled to Miami Beach. Some of the accused burglars from Miami had been in Washington three weeks before their arrest, where the offices of some prominent Democratic lawyers in the Watergate office building were burglarised. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is, well, when I started this project, a massive part of All the President's Men as a text being important to me uh, was its nexus between journalism and politics and morality and cinema. And the man I'm talking to today is literally the most qualified human being on planet earth to talk about anything that relates to Watergate. And after hearing his incredible series, slow burn, uh, the first season on Watergate, I can definitively say if, if the posts aspiration was to take that pacular energy and give us a prequel, uh, from Spielberg and Liz Hannah and co, then slow burn has succeeded at making the perfect, pre-final day's accompaniment to all the president's men. It's my huge honor and pleasure to talk to the man whose series is now about to be adapted into a docu-series for epics. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard his name a million times. If you've been listening like I have, it's Slow Burns, Leon Nafuck. Leon, thank you so much for being a part of all the president's minutes. 
Oh man, thanks for having me. Um, I actually, I, I, I have to correct you on one small thing uh, in, a, in a nice way. Uh, so the actually the Epic's docu series adaptation of Slow Burn is already airing. It just started on oh, Sunday. There However, you go. T- today, just just like earlier today, I learned that they uh, are making a uh, scripted series based on it as well. Um, it's the guy who made uh, Mr. Robot, Sam Esmile. Oh um, my God! <laughs> and listen to this: they they got Julia Roberts to play Martha Mitchell. We've got to shut up Martha, Leon. We've got it. We got to stop Martha. We got to get her out of here. <laughs> right. That is a bombshell. And you know what? Speaking of folks who like podcasts, I just heard an absolutely terrific and wonderful podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, actually, that had Sam Esmail on on the big picture. Sort oh, of, really? Inf- yeah, he's sort of emphatically talking about the most influential. Um, debuts and the most influential filmmakers of like the past seven or eight decades with uh, Sean Fennessy and Amanda Dobbins. Oh, cool. And it's beautiful. And I kept thinking, man, I like Sam Esmail. Man, I like him. He's great. Well, well there's there another yeah. there's another perspective <laughs> guest for this show. My friend, thank you so much again. You, you must be insanely busy. That is an insane whirlwind you're going on. And what's annoying <laughs> for me, the only annoying thing for me as a uh, an Australian is that I can't see the damn show. They can't, I can't see the TV show now. I, I can be oh, a slow. get epics out there. There's no epics in Oz, so I'm going to have to wait until I'll send, some. I'll send you some screeners. Oh, you're amazing. That, that, <laughs> that's my special thing on the side. So in this Minute by Minute podcast, obviously we, we examine each minute because this text, um, in my mind, is so, sort of a perfect movie in almost every sense of the word. It has an alchemy of all these different filmmakers. It has this laser focus. It has the shocking thing. I mean, there's kind of two ways that uh, texts like this or, 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 or historical events happen, which is people like Pacula and Redford are entangled with these guys as they're producing this book. It's pre, it's actual publication. It's only a, a manuscript and they start building the script out of it. And it's almost in production concurrently as some of these huge historical events. And then there's something so definitive like yourself with slow burn series of actually taking historical hindsight and weaving together the madness that surrounds Watergate. Cause I think that that is what's most flabbergasting and just so ferociously entertaining in your, in your work. What was your relationship with all the president's men? Was this a movie that you went back and revisited and, and, and tinkered with and toiled with and passively sort of watched and then slowly became obsessed with? How, how big was it as part of your, you, you know, your sort of obsession with Watergate? Uh, well, so I had definitely seen it a number of times. Um, I, can't, I can't say that like, I, I was obsessed with the movie so much that I wanted to like, take my own crack at Watergate. I think the genesis of, of the Slow Burn uh, podcast was kind of like, uh, more, more, more um, connected to the just the news uh, that that was coming out. Uh, yeah. You know, in, in, in the <laughs> yes. summer and fall of 2017, you had the Mueller investigation, you know, in full swing, and people were constantly referencing Watergate on on TV and in you know in commentary. And we 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 felt like there was an opportunity to really like tell the story uh, in a new way. First of all, like in a new format, which is the podcast, but also like kind of turnover rocks that maybe um, you know didn't get turned over in, in the movie. The, the thing that I'll say about, you know, about the relationship between the movie and the podcast is that uh, it gave us a really, really valuable um, uh, baseline uh, in terms of like what our audience was going to know going in uh, yes. because it's such an iconic movie because, you know, so many people uh, who were going to be listening to the podcast would have already seen it. Um, yes. We were able to sort of like 
watch it, and we did certainly did watch it. You know, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe even more than maybe even more than once when we were starting to starting to sort of outline our series. Um, it gave us like it gave us really valuable information about what people, uh, what 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 knowledge we could assume on the part of our audience, and what was going to feel new or unfamiliar. Um, you know, we've made other podcasts since since the first season of Slow Burn. Right now, we're we're actually in the middle of releasing our uh, second season of our new podcast, Fiasco, and it's about Iran Contra. Yes. Iran Contra is like a totally different ballgame because there is no All the President's Men about Iran Contra. There is no like definitive take take on it that that everyone has seen. And so, the work of like, you know, kind of pitch like, uh, how do I say this? Like the work of sort of um, framing the plot as we as we un- as we unfurl it in the podcast. Um, was, you was, got was more work harder. to do. Yeah, yeah it was a lot harder because you couldn't assume, you know, any basic any basic knowledge, uh, and uh, you know that made it made me really kind of grateful in retrospect for for how how sort of uh, how how much of a how much of an advantage it gave us to to have all the president's men uh, to reference and and sort of push push against, I guess, in, in the making of Slowburn One. It's it's really incredible too, and this is what I would say about Slowburn One is. Um, all the president's men, and this is my experience, and I know it's a lot of people that I talk to. It's, it's so, it's such a text that, especially if you weren't absorbing the news on a daily basis and being completely bombarded and swarmed by just those papers. And I, I guess that that genesis for you comes out of your own experience as a journalist and and, and as a producer um, in 2017. But if you if you watch all the president's men, and that's your gateway to something like Watergate, so often you uh, go down rabbit holes um, to you go down rabbit holes to sort of seek out the additional information, seek out the weird and wonderful things that are entangled with this story. And what mm-hmm. I think slow burn teaches you is this Watergate is like an endless Reddit rabbit hole. Like it just <laughs> like, like I, I thought I kind of had the gist down beginning to produce a show called all the president's minutes of some of the definitive books and some of the definitive takes and some of those great guests that you've, you know, referenced and historians, but the ancillary madness, especially the flight with the pilot and the cyanide, it it, like that, that was days. That took me days of Googling, uh, over here in Oz, just thinking like, this is just an unbelievable time and your slow burn podcast digesting it is just such a it's it's really interesting. Do you feel satiated with it, or did you feel like there were still things that you were scratching at at the end of this thing? Uh, do you mean like just things that I'm still curious about, or things that I wasn't able to kind of figure out? Yeah, things you're not able to figure out in the whole Watergate thing, or things you're still curious about. Probably both. Yeah, definitely. There's there's one big one, uh, and it's 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 uh, there. Actually, I'll, I'll I'll give you two. One one is like I. I'm so curious about how Nixon and his aides made the decision not to uh, destroy the tapes. Um, yes, because I feel like, in retrospect, that could have that could have been, you know, it would have been controversial. Obviously, like if if they had done that, and it would have maybe it would have made him look really guilty. And I think that's probably ultimately why they decided not to not to, to take that sort of radical step of just like burning them all up them all. so that no one could ever hear them. But um. But I got to think that like it was not a self, uh, a, not a self-evident choice. You know what I mean? Like th- there were definitely, you know, I'm sure arguments to be made for for destroying the tapes. Like I bet you some someone could have said pretty plausibly that like, look, we burn them, and it's it's a two-day story, it's a three-day story. We don't burn them, and these things are going to just be dribbling out bit by bit for 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 months, and we're going to yes. pay for it every single day. Um, so that's one thing. Um, 
I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? Do you think they should have burned them? Do you think they would have gotten away with it more 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 I, effectively? I, I think in 2020, we're so accustomed, and I I know about you. Like if you ever worked in any, it doesn't matter if you're a journalist or whether you've worked in a corporation. The term server error is common. And I just feel like in 2020, like if this was all digitally recorded, someone could go, oh, we lost the server. The recordings yeah, are gone. Exactly. You know, like yeah. instantly. And they go, look, we know that it sounds guilty. You know, we've got, we've been able to recover some of the recordings, even just like the dribs and drabs, the, the most innocuous ones. You know, they sort of keep them. But they're like, no, there's been a server error. It's been a crash or there was a fire at a data center. I just feel like the spin... <laughs> almost is more conducive to contemporary times and our like the 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 transience of things you know as a physical media person to a certain extent as well like i like having my hands on my you know on a novel or or a t you know something like that and in a podcast world it's like that's your greatest fear right like for right. stuff that you've produced it just goes so i feel totally. like I feel like there's something so active i love what you said there it's like someone is actively burning them if they're destroyed like they have to actually, I think they'd have to set a fire in the White House. Like that's the only way that I think they get out of it. Like there's a fire in the Oval Office and all of the tapes are destroyed. And they literally <laughs> have good. to, they literally have to, someone has to set the place on fire for, to make that story work for me. But I don't know if they were willing to do that, obviously. But uh, I yeah, just, I don't know. Yeah, uh, but that's, <laughs> but I tend to agree with you, right? Like you see these things in a modern context when we're hearing, uh, when we're hearing accounts like the, I think you you mentioned it many times on your show is the whole John Dean like you know almost recall um, of of events. The recall is ten times more powerful when you have the tape. If you don't have the tape, there's still a big question mark. Right. Yeah. I think I think it, it's it's. I mean it's 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 hard to imagine sort of like how it would have all gone differently if they had taken that route. Um, Yes, but it's. I think it's certainly true that I think a big part of why, you know, it became untenable for Nixon to stay in office was that there just were these, just like undeniable tapes. You know, I mean the smoking gun tape, obviously, but even the rest of them, right? You know, like even the it, stuff they put out. You know, it just like having having just like primary sources like that. There's nothing like it. Um, and if there was no, <laughs> and if there, was, and if they no. weren't there, then I, I, it's just very hard to imagine, kind of, or very hard to kind of. It's hard to it's hard to it's hard to guess exactly what would have been different, but I think a lot of it I think a lot of a lot of it would have been different. Um, my other my other thing that I'm still curious about, and uh, I think people are going to be surprised to hear that there's not like a settled answer on this, but it's why did why did they break into the Watergate? Why did they why did they feel like they needed to break into the DNC? Um, what were they looking for? Um, what were their goals? What were their fears that they were like sort of trying to, you know, uh, address by by getting whatever intelligence they were hoping to get out of this out of these wiretaps? Um, as it turns out, like there's not really a consensus about this. Um, you know, was it just like kind of a a preemptive, you know, just step taken to just slightly give you know slightly give give Nixon just any advantage in the in the upcoming election? Um, or was there more to it? You know, there's there's a theory. I don't know if you if you've come across this that, um, and I'm not I'm, I'm not going to be able to get into the details because I don't remember them perfectly. But something involving um, the head of the DNC was supposedly I don't know if this is true. Like had some relationship with Howard Hughes, whom Nixon also knew yes. uh, quite well. And there was this whole controversy dating back years in which uh, Hughes had donated money. Um, I think to 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 BB Rebozo, who was Nixon's good friend, um, and that had like that had really hurt Nixon in a previous election. 
And I think there's, a, again, a, a theory, and I think we talked about this in the podcast in the conspiracy theories episode. You did. But there was, there was, a, there was like a, 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 a supposition that Nixon was worried about what the head of the DNC, um, whose name uh, embarrassingly escapes me right now, but uh, that he would know that he knew something about another loan that 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 Hughes had given had made to Bibi Rebozo, and that uh, the tapping of, of of that guy's phones, the DNC, was a, was a means of uh, protecting against whatever disclosure would come out of that. It's so crazy, and and this is the thing. Leon, that I hear in your podcast and people would listen to is, and, and even in the film, this is, and I think in the film, it's, this is, it's, it begins to scratch the itch. And I hadn't really thought about it until you talked about it is they were already on a multi-layered national campaign of uh, political espionage, doing big and small things, fake letters, f- you know, weird stationary things, all the rat fucking that has become become popular you know popularized um (laughs) and now another political term you know in australia even uh some the the terms rat fucking um have come up with even former prime ministers and leaked information from former prime ministers but it's it's just one of those things where you think how much more of an advantage can you possibly have when you're already sabotaging them at almost every layer that is conceivable that you have the audacity to then try and get to the chairman's office like that one thing is going to happen i remember in your series you talked about the um the the cab driver uh the cab driver scenario who is taking who has set up a xerox machine in his apartment and photocopying everything like exactly it's like how much more clarity do you need behind enemy lines so to speak when you're already sabotaging anyone that that they're trying to front up to be a candidate whatsoever yeah, I mean, there's there's that, and then there's the other fact that they were like really winning. I mean, you know, maybe they didn't <laughs> yes. know it at the time, but like they ended <laughs> yes. up winning in a massive landslide. And like, yes. you got to wonder if they really needed this extra advantage. I mean, any you know any of the stuff you just mentioned, like they would have won anyway. And totally. it's just such a such a reflection of I think Nixon's paranoia and fear of losing that that maybe pushed pushed his staff to like try to just take any any advantage they could. Um, even if you know a rational analysis would have would have indicated that they didn't need to. Well, speaking of total and utter uh, irrationality, let's um, let's dive into the minute at hand, um, where there's something that's greater than rational and just pure energetic of Dustin Hoffman's portrayal as Carl Bernstein on the top of the W Hotel, trying to flirt his way through information on Charles Colson and Howard Hunt. Um, Leon and I are going to watch this minute along together. You guys are going to listen along. And then obviously this will trigger many more great conversations with uh, the legend behind Slow Burn. So, uh, <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm saying it, man. I've, I've been addicted. I've gone I've, a couple of times through. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. So guys, uh, listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Did you know uh, Howard Hunt? Didn't he work in the, in yeah, the office? Yeah, I knew Howard. Nice. He's a nice person. He's secretive. He's secretive, but a decent man. Do you have any idea what he did? Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? (laughs) He was doing investigative work. On what? (sighs) Different things. Like what? She warned me. (laughs) I'm not going to take my book. I'm just asking you. Well... The scuttlebutt for a while was that he was investigating Kennedy. Why? 
White House is real paranoid about Teddy Kennedy. I remember seeing a book about Chappaquiddick on his desk, and he was always getting material out of the White House Library and the Library of Congress and anything he could find. White House Library. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein, the Washington. There it is. Beautiful day in Washington when they shot this, huh? Beautiful yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like California. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it, in the middle of summer. I know. Yeah. On top of um, the what's now, it was. Scene. I think. I think it was called the W Hotel at the time, or uh-huh. the um where where it was, and 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 just from a pure technical perspective, what I love about this, and we'll get into the content of like eking out this information as a journalist, sort of passively, you know, trawling for information, but. It's such an amazing technical choice to go, okay, we're going to go to the spot where this actual interaction happened. We're going to shoot it in broad daylight. We're going to shoot it in when it's windy, so that's going to give us trouble with the sound. It's also going to make matching a problem if, like, clouds come over. And air, excuse me, airplanes are going to come in and ruin every take if you don't just accept that they're there and to happen. And seemingly, you know, you can totally see other filmmakers uh, other than Alan Pakula going, can we just set this somewhere else that's more quiet, like another restaurant? Why does it have to be here? <laughs> but making the choice of like, no, this is, the, the ethos of this movie is to take you to these places and spaces and make you feel the atmosphere of, you know, this strange, paranoid, sort of concrete, constantly listening um, Washington landscape, uh, make you feel exactly what it feels like. It's such a, it's such a great couple of choices that we make when we come up to this scene. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't uh, they didn't skimp on 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 the budget, whatever whatever uh, extra budget <laughs> was required to to make the choices you just mentioned. Though I think usually usually uh, I I, I, may, I notice this kind of stuff when there's a scene that like obviously should take take place at night, but it's obviously shot during the day. That's yes. like when you know they couldn't get you know overtime overtime for the for the crew paid for, so they just decided to say screw it and filmed it in the middle of the day. Obviously, that's not what's happening here, but uh, but yeah, I think you're right. There's a there's some there's some real effort probably put in on the back end to make this uh, to make this shot work. And the the actress's name, who plays Sharon Lyons, her name is Penny Pizer. God, what an alliterative name! She could be a comic book character. She's beautiful. <laughs> totally. And this is the rumor is Leon that um, so William Goldman won the best original screenplay for the film. And about I believe you know if you did some uh, sleuthing. About 85 to 90% of his script as written is what the final script looks like. The final assembly pieces and touches, and there's like um, a, a lot of sort of crafting from Redford and Pacula as like a stylist to kind of make, to, to, to take their spin on it, to do certain things. But one funny scene is there's Nora Ephron was Carl Bernstein's girlfriend at the time that this film was being produced who is a great filmmaker in her own right. Mm-hmm. And apparently they took a pass at the script. Um, and and there's one scene that kind of has a little bit more of the Nora Ephron flourish, um, which we're going to get to later in, in this, that was left over from them doing that script. And I always wonder in this scene, when they're talking about how great a, a flirt 
that Bernstein is, if that's still a hangover from the Nora Ephron script, like being really kind <laughs> to Bernstein's charm, like just like history is going to be kind to this guy's, you know, sexual appeal. I always <laughs> wonder that. And uh, and so that's that's another little great wrinkle in this scene. Uh, that's funny. I feel like I feel like uh, I feel like Hoffman just can't help it. He's no. just like, no. you know, just he red can- hot. Red hot at that time, of course. So this scene, when you're thinking about, and and this is, I guess, the way that I think about it is, you 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 summarize your uh, your series with a question of like, there are so many little little decisions that are along the way that you see as like, you know, you could you could dismiss them as little things, but they become major turning points in the case. And I feel like this movie is a litany of those things, these tiny conversations that truly start to contextualize fear and paranoia of like from the white house about maintaining their power, like fear of like, we've got it, our dominance, our mechanisms of all this political espionage. And this is just one scene, like starting to research the remaining Kennedys with with a with a deep concern about their influence to sort of to 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 usurp him like mm-hmm. nixon is right you know you start to get this thing of like it's painting a picture it's not this guy who's coming down on high from a chopper and delivering a resounding address this is a guy who's deeply deeply paranoid well he's doing both right you, wait, wait, what did, you said he's not a guy who's like who's what who's what did, how did you put that again uh i just uh, he's like the beginning of the film frames him is this is this you know, kingly figure who comes down oh, from on yeah. high from his helicopter. He comes into a resounding address. It's the the exterior of him seems like he's impenetrable. I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I I, I was on the same page as you. Yeah. So I, I I think there's like what you learn right when you when you hear kind of the 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 previously undisclosed parts of of the story or rather the parts that were not on display while while it was all unfolding is that yeah Nixon was totally different behind the scenes as compared to his like stately you know presentation that he that he was quite good at putting on yes one thing people ask a lot about is like you know in just in 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 connection to the podcast they're like how do you compare nixon and trump uh and my answer is like i think nixon cared a lot more about about appearances right he like (laughs) yes he needed to be seen as a statesman like a big part of the 72 campaign was all about like uh projecting this image of of nixon as this like statesman who you know was going to china and was making like you know, these big world, you know, big decisions on the world stage. Um, yes. Just the opposite of someone who's petty and paranoid and and, and pissed off at, like, you know, <laughs> his enemies. Uh, and so I think he, like, really did a good job of keeping that stuff secret. I mean, obviously people knew that he, uh, you know, that he had certain resentments and that was always sort of famous part of his his uh, image. But he definitely tried, you know, to, to, to present as, as um, a leader. Um, and I think that part of why people didn't really believe that the Watergate thing could possibly be connected to him at first or like why they were willing to believe the White House line about how it was, you know, uh, uh, what was the phrase? Uh, a third rate burglary. Um, yeah. <laughs> is that it was like it was like truly hard to imagine Nixon, the statesman, being engaged in this like grubby bullshit, you know? Yeah, that's that's the big corresponding conversation that I've had uh, over here when I'm talking about the comparisons of Nixon and Trump. And the thing I say is like, I can't imagine Trump addressing the international community with the with the Americans landing on the moon and holding and, and and delivering such beautiful 
statements of solidarity. Like, it's so weird watching the documentary Apollo 11 last year and being like, God, Nixon could actually be a like one of the great diplomats of the world. Like he wasn't, he wasn't, there wasn't chess beating jingoistic nonsense. It was like, and in solidarity of mankind. And and you're like, what, who is this guy? Like the the guy that you hear on these tapes and on your show, and you've been reading about in preparation for this show myself personally, it's just like it, 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 there's, there is the, the gap is wider, but, but so the paranoia and the madness, I mean, it, it is crazy. And, um, another thing I would ask is, you know, so I, I get asked, and I want to hear if you get asked this a lot. It's like, what, what can you imagine Nixon now in 2020 compared to <laughs> compared to then? And the only thing that I say that I really would like is I would love if Nixon had access to Twitter. I would <laughs> just like, can we just say he for two years of his term in the first term, he may not have been able to like he may he may not have uh, he may have been able to help himself from writing something but you just know that he's reading every negative uh-huh. comment and that ne- <laughs> and that and that enemy's list is is now an enemy's like dossier like it's 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 massive it's just never ending totally um you know so w- one thing that i that i uh sh- feel like i should say uh, is that i i don't f- uh i don't think of myself as a Nixon expert. Um, I, I know that like, you know, I, I've like spent all this time kind of researching Watergate and all these, you know, subplots that we featured on the podcast. But one choice we made sort of early on was that because, you know, in part because all the president's men existed, because sort of Nixon, um, you know, Nixon's role in all this has been sort of chewed over, we were going to try to kind of nibble more around the edges and kind of go deeper on characters and, and, and individuals who have not been, you know, canonized sort of in the same way. Yes. And the result of that kind of early decision was that I don't think the podcast is really about Nixon. Like the podcast barely kind of fleshes him out as a character. There's a couple things here and there that maybe help, you know, people understand who he was. But, you know, compared to, for instance, like our second season, which was about the Clinton impeachment or uh, the project we're doing now on Iran-Contra, which is all about Ronald Reagan, I feel like Nixon is like a really a minor character in the podcast. And so I feel like I have a lot to learn about sort of you know what he was really like, and kind of the, the the gulf between his public and his person, you know, and his private self. Um, so you know, I, I, it's I think an that's but, little. But that's the best choice, Leon. I think that that's that's why I truly and 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 I'm and I'm not just saying it to blow smoke because I'm talking to you. I genuinely <laughs> have said I genuinely have said this and talked to you know people who've been on this show now when I can uh, recommend them and folks who are, who are listening to this episode are going to hear it is. The, the decision to stick with the decision to stick with the facts and ride the facts like all the president's men rides with the facts means that it's impossible to know Nixon's mind. Mm-hmm. We can see you can you can chart it out. Um, you can chart it out so effectively when you're doing direct comparisons between things that are things that happen. So when you guys do your comparisons between you know a, a state address and then maybe a. Co- corresponding tape that was done on that day mm-hmm. you get to see the gap but you don't understand it i think that that's what still keeps us that's what makes him such a fascinating figure and also the guy who burned the tapes basically be innocent get a complete pardon and then go on a hundred talk shows to talk about it and then get trapped in conversations where you're trying to maintain innocence when you've clearly been pardoned 
and you become guilty. It's like it's the infatuation of the Frost Nixons of the world, of those great plays that have been, you know, whether it's a play or a film or, you know, Oliver Stone doing Nick, his his big, you know, treatise on Nixon as, as well with Anthony Hopkins. It's like mm-hmm. these tests, these texts exist. I think that that's what's great about both your text and all the presidents is you can't know his mind. You can't know what – it's impossible to understand how someone with that much power is still so desperate. Like that's what – I think that ultimately is what makes him – so fascinating. Yeah, we've been. Uh, I agree with all that. We we've been uh, happy to to to, to find uh, some nice opportunities for cameos from from Nixon uh, <laughs> yes. in the in, a, in the Iran Contra series we're doing. Um, he uh, not to not to go too far down this rabbit hole, but there there's a there's a an individual who worked in the Reagan administration named Bud McFarlane. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he um, he was the national security advisor. Um, and he was the person who brought the idea of selling uh, weapons to Iran as part of a diplomatic opening to, to possible moderates in the Iranian government to Ronald Reagan. Uh, and, and he was the person who sort of felt responsible for, um, you know, guiding the initiative when it went off the rails. Um, McFarlane uh, left the administration um, after the first two arms sales to Iran and got he got so de- he got just so depressed when the scandal broke, um, and the Reagan administration was in such peril. Um, he felt so responsible for it. Um, he actually attempted suicide. Oh my um, god! Yeah, and um, and we interviewed him about all this. Um, you know, all these years later, but he was telling us about how, you know, just how how depressed he was, and and he survived obviously. Um, yes. But he was in, he was he was in the hospital um, for about two weeks, and during those two weeks, Nixon came to see him uh and uh basically like offered him some advice about you know kind of living with your mistakes living with your errors um and not letting them define you um which i thought was really interesting um there's another cameo uh in also this is again this is from from fiasco our new podcast um there was a moment when uh after the scandal kind of broke uh in november of 86 uh when uh one of uh one of Reagan's aides, Pat Buchanan, who had also worked for Nixon um, back in the day, yes, uh, called he called Nixon for advice, like how do we handle this? Um, and Nixon's advice was like, just get it all out. Like cover ups gonna be worse than the crime. Just t- tell the truth as much as you can. Um, so it's it's it was interesting to sort of see him pop back up uh, in in uh, in a story taking place. You know, all these years later. Oh my god, that, this is why this guy's fascinating, right? That's what that, I mean. You just you you hit the nail on the head. Is that in the middle of it, it's all the lies until it's the truth, and then it's still this wrestle with public and private personas, and then later on that gesture of compassion to someone who's dealing with, you know, uh, you know, fatal potentially fatal consequences for for the for the error of their ways, and like no, tell the truth. Like yeah, can you imagine nineteen seventy two Richard Nixon? Telling someone to tell the truth. Let's get it all out there. This is yeah, you got to learn your lessons. I guess you don't just have them in your head from straight it, from the jump. Insane, insane. So now, maybe this is this is the most important question, Leon. Is of the extremely attractive and talented acting cohort today, if someone's going to play you 
in the uh, film <laughs> adaption. Um, you know, how do you cover yourself in glory like uh, Bob Woodward did to get Robert Redford to play you? I mean, do we do we have? Have you been earmarking really <laughs> talented and attractive, square jawed, very beautifully straight postured uh, actors to think? You know what? If someone is going to play me in this movie, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot for the shoot for the stars. Well, it's 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 a, it's, it's a funny question because you know so like. I don't know how much how, how you know you, you probably listen to a lot of podcasts like so you know this like there are a lot of podcasts that take the all the president's men model of telling a story or, or unfurling a mystery where absolutely they use, uh, use a reporter you know wh- you know sometimes it's the host themselves um, you know to sort of like provide the frame for the narrative or to provide provide the spine of the narrative rather um, you know it's a it's a really useful device I mean it works beautifully in this movie. Um, and the reason is that you, it gives you just an automatic like order in which to find stuff out, right? It's just, you're a reporter, you're trying to solve a mystery and you present the facts to your audience in the same way that you, that the reporter, you know, learned them, uh, when they were working on the story. And so podcasts do this all the time. There's like all kinds of true crime podcasts where it's just like a person, um, you know, investigating a story. Maybe they don't even know if they're going to solve it. I mean, Serial is the best example of this, right? Or at least Huge. like the most influential. Serial S- and S-Town yeah. are, are, are drinking from William Goldman's Kool-Aid. They are just <laughs> like, and I say William Goldman even more so than the All the President's Men book is that the structure of um, dynamic entertainment storytelling, like there's like hallmarks from the screenplay as much as there is from the book and the methods of, 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 of Bernstein and Wood themselves. Yeah. Um, but so to your question, like, you know, I think, I think it would be hard to, 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 um, to make a movie about, uh, the making of a podcast in this, in this context, because we were mostly just sitting at our desks, uh, <laughs> on Skype internationally, like we are right yeah, exactly, now, different exactly. times of the day. It'd be, it'd be, it wouldn't be the most exciting movie, but, um, but you know, maybe I'll, uh, maybe now that I know that this, uh, this Julia Roberts movie is made about <laughs> Martha Mitchell, maybe I can, uh, finagle a cameo for myself as, uh. uh as I don't know. I, I, I'll have to think about it. I have to think about it. Look, and if, if you do figure it out, we'll definitely post it on uh, all the presidents <laughs> and Twitter um, when when the the final casting comes through. Um, so let's talk, let's talk about this minute. Let's talk about the Library of Con- uh, Congress. Like, let's let's talk about Bernstein as a character. So, like when you're when you're having a look at this minute, you're, you're feeling this part of the story. Where are you feeling like? When you when you get to this moment in the story, is this has the moment that's hooked you? If you're ever going to watch this movie, already happened, or is or is it starting to happen as you're starting to realize the intricacies and the expanse of this like web of or, or this web of espionage that sort of just built into the way that this administration was working? Yeah, so I have to I have to be honest. Like I don't totally remember exactly like when in the movie this this moment pops up, but I, I kind of feel like. The movie had me from 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 jump. Like I don't yes. think there was like a moment where I was like, ah, I'm not really sure I'm into this. <laughs> but uh, but I think like maybe the thing what maybe the thing you're getting at uh, is that this is like this is a moment when this reporter who has this kind of like vague picture in his head uh, of what might have happened here, and you know he just has theories at this point. Just to sit across from a, a person who is there who was in the room and who can say yeah i saw this happen or i saw i heard this phone call or i saw these books that he checked out it like makes it real right it's yes. just like very quickly and this is also why we like in, in our podcast we try to find the person who was in the room you know like we tried we talked to a to a guy who for the iran contra season of fiasco we like talked to um 
a guy who flew planes in, over Nicaragua dropping supplies oh, to the Contras, you know, um, or in our in our first season uh, on which we did on the 2000 election and the Bush v. Gore battle in Florida. We like talked to this random guy who happened to find uh, this might be too far in the weeds. You can cut this. But he fa- he was the guy who found Elian Gonzalez in the water. Elian Gonzalez was a little Cuban boy who was um, <laughs> who was found, you know, floating in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and it set off this whole chain of react chain of events, Gosh. you know, that, that, that really hurt Gore in Florida because of the Cuban American community there. I don't want to get into all that, but basically like finding the person who was like, Oh, you were literally like, you're an individual and you were there and you were talking to me now and you're telling, you know, it's just like for a reporter, I think who has, who has been kind of trying to chip away at a story and nibbling around the edges and sort of trying, trying to piece it together in your head. Like just that, that moment of coming into face to face with like, a, a true witness is like that's that's very special. Yeah, I, I think you, and especially at this time, I think you cotton on to something, which is right now at the beginning of this story, people are still talking. Like they don't know because later, when when the sort of retraction happens, and I mean retraction as in like it's sh- the shrinking of of people's willingness to talk because of the scrutiny and because of all the you know the you know the the. Uh, the committee to re-elect the president is going in and burning the paper trail, not mm-hmm. the tapes, just the paper trail. Yeah. But like right now, the secretary is totally fine to go. Yeah, like he was investigating Kennedy, and yeah, they were checking out lots of stuff. They were reading lots of stuff from the Library of Congress. Like they were interested. That's what they were doing. Like to, to still be so forthright, it's so interesting. And that's what you know. That's not a battle that you're necessarily butting against at the moment, which is someone being there and having that experience. And even on this show, it, um, for folks who are listening now, you're the twenty fifth. A minute um, of all the president's minutes, and uh-huh. the, the the previous minute, I spoke to an editor of RogerEbert.com, a, a lawyer and a film critic, Nell Minow, who's a Washington-based, um, a Washington-based uh, critic, and has been there for many years. And she talked about um, being at an event when she was an intern a, a, as a younger lady, and seeing Nixon in 1973, like seeing him face to face in the middle of this in the middle of this time, like she was in the White House for an event. And she just said he looked in person unhinged. Like he looked like this was already completely smashing down on him and he still had a year to go. Like she said, he just looked like death when you saw him face to face. Like he looked like mm-hmm. it was had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And I said, it's so funny because at that time he's still in the press and outwardly and Spur Agnew and all those people that are talking on his behalf in the film. Um, it's still, it hasn't quite reached that tipping point yet. So it's so interesting that right. even at that point, it was weighing on him. So to hear that like first person, it gives you a whole other dimension, I suppose, like right now, like exactly like you said, it's like, I think Bernstein thinks one thing totally about, oh, I'm just going to find a few details about what this guy's doing. And then when he hears that they're investigating Kennedy, he's like, it's it sort of, it completely sort of flabbergasts him. He's like, well, what the hell, why Why the hell would they be investigating Kennedy? What does that matter? It's It's really interesting to see, those awakenings on his head. And then, uh, you know, as we conclude our scene, we're rolling into that beautiful exchange with the White House uh, Library, of Con- oh, sorry, the Library of Congress and yeah, you, yeah. You, the White House press secretary that denies the conversations <laughs> even take place. Uh, that's some other fun stuff that happens in this Watergate. Look, it's amazing that he could, uh, that he could, that he could have all that happening for himself in that, in that moment and still be so good at flirting. <laughs> Look, he needs an Academy Award for flirting. I mean, that is just an unbelievable <laughs> flirting performance from Hoffman as uh, as uh, as Bernstein there. And look, 
we can we can all take a leaf. Hey, he I've, was there. I've, to... I've, I've flirted with with people to try to get them to to, <laughs> to talk to me for sure. Now that's uh, an exclusive. It's part of that's, every you know. That's part an exclusive. Of it, part, part of the job. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta you gotta make sure that you know you're trying you're trying to. Uh, you know, they, what do they call it? Greasing the wheels. You know, you're trying to make people feel comfortable so that they'll share. And in this moment, he feels like if he just relentlessly flirts with her, her, you know, her deflections will be to share some information. And that's, it's, it's a very effective thing. But look, I'm going to stop relentlessly flirting with you because I appreciate your time <laughs> so much um, being a part of this show and uh, a big fan, as I said. Folks, if you haven't, you must listen to Slow Burn 1. Follow uh, all of Leon's work into Fiasco and obviously Slow Burn 2 and, and even Slow Burn 3. I've been addicted um, to, you know, as a, as a hip-hop fan, addicted to the most uh, recent the most recent fully published series of Slow Burn on Tupac and Biggie. Um, but my friend, thank you so much for being a part of All the President's Minutes. It's an incredible, uh, it's incredible to talk to you as a person who's been so obsessed in this in, in this world to, uh, to sort of get your insights. It's a, it's a real treat. Thank you so much. I, I had a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on. That was the incredible Leon Nafark from Slow Burn. Guys, if you want to hear a like the true sort of factual account of some of the strange chicanery around this story, you must subscribe to slow burn season one is watergate eight episodes and if you become a slate premium subscriber you can get some of the bonus episodes extended interviews etc so i would strongly recommend that you do that um definitely go and uh follow leon and if you've got a few bucks jump on to luminary get a subscription and go and find his new show fiasco um which is currently in its second season and finally if you want to follow leon on twitter it's at leon crawl thank you so much again for listening to all the president's minutes and anything on the one heat minute productions feed i'm your host blake howard and producer of increment vice as well as everything that's been happening on the one heat minute productions feed if you want to follow me simply go to at one blake minute on instagram and on twitter or to oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show if you guys want to support us we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our patreon If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, the amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please, subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.